Uh, I'm Evan. Uh, some of you know that, some of you don't. I'm the worship pastor here. I've been here for about eight years, um, and this is my very first Sunday uh, preaching, so I'm excited and a little nervous. Um, I, think, I think it'll help everybody if you guys, no matter what, just act like it's going great. Um, it'll certainly help me, and if nothing else, it'll distract you. So every once in a while doing like, maybe like a lean, the lean forward, like that, or like notes, I see you guys are already doing the notes, so um, yeah, if you guys can just do your best acting job, then it will in turn actually allow me to do better, and then you will have to subsequently act less as the evening goes. Um, I'm going to pray before I start. Um, when I first started preparing for this sermon, my wife had showed me this prayer that Thomas Aquinas wrote, and I've kind of been getting into written prayers that are written out, and I thought this one was really, really great, and it was something that I prayed every time before I started studying, and I thought maybe we could pray it together, so uh, if you'll bow your heads with me. Ineffable creator who, from the treasures of your wisdom, have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of our minds. Disperse from our souls the twofold darkness into which we were born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants, refine our speech and pour forth upon our lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to us keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of our work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You, who are the true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end. Amen. All right, so we're approaching the end of our series on the Meyer Prophets. Um, Tonight, I'm going to be teaching out of Zechariah, which is the second to last book of the Old Testament, second to last minor prophet. Um, I got the great honor of teaching from the, the longest of the minor prophets. It has the most messianic prophecies in it. I told Tim when he told me which book I was preaching out of that it's my, it has all the best prophecies. It's like the greatest hits. Um, and it's also considered one of the most dense and difficult of the minor prophets. Tonight, we'll just say it is definitely the most dense and difficult. Anyone who's able to preach from it is a master. Um, I'm going to try to give you a little bit of a background of the book. I'm not a biblical historian, so I'm not going to try to talk to you like I am one, because that would be weird. And I'm not Tim Mackey, believe it or not. So I'm not going to try to talk to you like I'm Tim Mackey, though that would be funny. Um, But I do want to give a good overview of the book, because... I'm only teaching on a small portion of it, but I think it's always best practice to know what's going on in the background of this book, what was happening in reality at the time when it was written. Um, I made a little timeline graphic to appear more professional, but also because time can be confusing, guys, and in BC times, time moves the other way. It goes from higher numbers to lower numbers. And sometimes when I'm saying a bunch of dates, you might be like, wait, what? Evan's got it all wrong. Just refer to the timeline and you'll see I don't. 
All right, so a little background behind this book. And some of this will sound familiar because this was all happening right around the same time as Haggai. Those of you who were here last week, that's uh, what Josh taught out of last week. So this might be a little familiar. Um, In the year 586 B.C., the Babylonians, under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar II, invaded Jerusalem and conquered it. They destroyed the temple and they took the southern kingdom of Judah captive, taking the people out of Jerusalem and into Babylon. This was the second time that the Jews were exiled. The first was uh, the Assyrian exile in 733 B.C. Um, Fifty years after this second exile, in 539 B.C., Babylon then was conquered by Persia. Lots of conquering going on back then. Sounds familiar. Um, Babylon fell to Persia and, where is his name? Cyrus the Great, who's the leader of the Persians, decreed that the Jews would be allowed to return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. Now, that's where Zechariah comes in. Very young Zechariah was likely one of the many Israelites who returned back to Jerusalem out of captivity. Um, Evidence suggests he was quite young when he began his ministry, when he began his prophetic ministry. Um, He was much younger than Haggai, who he worked with. So it's possible that he was actually born in captivity in Babylon, and this would be actually his first time returning to Jerusalem. Um, His name means Yahweh remembers, and he comes from the lineage of priests. His grandfather was a priest named Edo, and his father was a man named Berechiah. So in 537 B.C., after the Israelites have returned back to Jerusalem, they are able to lay the foundation for their new temple. It's about two years after they come back to Jerusalem. But after they laid the foundation, all the building of the new temple stopped um, for a few reasons. There was a lot of opposition from the uh, Samaritans at the time. And again, I'm not sure what that sort of opposition looked like, but it was enough that it completely halted the building of the temple. Um, And this temple was to house the presence of the Lord. So this was extreme opposition. But on top of that, as we learned from Haggai, The Israelites had once again turned from the Lord and they started focusing on themselves and they started spending their time and resources building up their own houses and their own city um, rather than rebuilding the house of the Lord. So Zechariah is there. He's growing up in that and he sees all of this happening. He watches as 16 years go by without any progress on the temple. Uh, In 520 B.C., Haggai begins his prophetic ministry And a month after that is when Zechariah begins his ministry alongside Haggai. Um, Both of their ministries focused on encouraging the Jews towards spiritual renewal and finishing the temple. But in contrast to Haggai's more practical encouragements and warnings, Zechariah did this largely by revealing to them God's good plan for their future. Uh, On the night of February 15th, 519 B.C., Easy to remember, day after Valentine's Day. <laughs> they didn't have Valentine's Day back then, guys. Don't, you don't have to write that one down. Um, but in that one night, it's recorded that Zechariah has eight visions, all in one night, just all in one go. It's a crazy night. <laughs> Comes to breakfast the next morning, they're like, how did you sleep, Zechariah? He's like, well, let me tell you. I've got an idea for a book. Uh, <laughs> uh, those eight visions make up the first, basically the first half of the book of Zechariah. Um, 
Then he wrote this, the, the middle two chapters, seven and eight, two years later. Um, and the last chapters of the book are actually undated, and, a, and some historians question whether they were written by Zechariah at all uh, because of some stylistic differences. If you want to know more about that, I'm not the man to talk to. Uh, I can give you Tim Mackey's email address. I think for our purposes tonight, we can, we can all just agree that Zechariah likely wrote it. Um, but it was at a much later date when he was much older. Um, and these final chapters are prophecies about the future of Israel and about the coming Messiah and his eventual reign. And it's from one of these chapters that I'm going to be teaching from. So Zechariah really better have written it. Otherwise, he's going to make me look bad. Um, all right. So the series we're in is called Finding Jesus in the Minor Prophets. Um, over the past 10 weeks now, that's what we've been trying to do. We've been diving into these books or sometimes very carefully wading into these books, depending on who is up here. Uh, and we're looking at how we can see Jesus, his words and his life and his teachings reflected in these scriptures that were written hundreds of years before he was even born. Tonight I'm going to be teaching from one of Zechariah's messianic-centric poems uh, out of chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. And uh, we're going we're gonna to see how in just a two-verse poem, uh, which at first read might come across a little confusing, there's actually a full encapsulation of the gospel story. Um, and it's really, really quite cool. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Zechariah chapter 13, um, verses 7 through 9, or you can follow along on the screen. Now, I'll clarify, you do not have to read out loud with me. One Sunday I was reading from Psalms before worship started, and I must have made it seem like I was asking everybody to actually read along with me. And so everybody kind of started hesitantly reading the psalm, and I was like, oh, should I tell them to stop? And I think they were all like, are we supposed to be doing this? And we like just slowly kind of finished it, and then it was awkward. None of that. I will be the one reading out loud. Uh, all right. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God." All right, this is not a change of topic, but how many of you guys are familiar with Where's Waldo, the Where's Waldo books? Most? Okay, good. Again, I promise this is not a change of topic. My kids are, are pretty into finding Waldo these days, and as, I was, as we've been going through the Minor Prophets, I've kind of had this analogy that the Minor Prophets are a little bit like a Where's Waldo book. Like, you're trying to find Jesus in it, and sometimes you're just staring at the page, and you're like, where is Jesus in this? You can't find it. This, I don't think, I don't think that's the case here. Um, I couldn't resist. This kind of seems like just like a blank white page with Waldo on it, just like standing there, um, just waving at you. And there might even be a sign over his head just saying, here's Waldo. That, like, it's very clear. 
what we're looking at here. I made that cool little image just for you guys. I promise it didn't take too long. All right, we can move off that now. That's going to be very distracting. Um, so, yeah, I don't think we have to think or spend too, too much time thinking about where Jesus is in this when we really read it. We have a distinct advantage from our point in time. We can look at this. We have the whole rest of the Bible to show us what this meant. Um, when we see the opening verse, we can say this is speaking about the death of Jesus. Um, leading up to this, in context in the book, it's even more clear how Zechariah puts, puts this prophecy together. But even just this passage alone points directly to Jesus, even though it was written over 500 years before he was born. So verse 7 starts, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. So this poem begins with God, Lord of hosts, actually calling the sword into action against his shepherd. And who is the shepherd? You guys know the answer? Yes. Once again, as Josh said, it's always the safe answer. You can always just confidently say, that's really the only question we ask. Um, Yeah, the shepherd is Jesus. Um, When it says the man who stands next to me, against the man who stands next to me, that the original word does not just mean some random guy standing next to him. That would, be a, that would be weird. That would be very confusing. But this word actually carries like a, fam, a familial, close familial implication. Some different translations say my companion or my equal or my near neighbor. Um, earlier in Zechariah, there are sections that talk about the rise and fall of false shepherds. But I think Zechariah is making it clear in this poem that this shepherd is the true shepherd, the Messiah, someone who the Lord God considers his equal and who he loves. So this opening verse shows that the cross, Jesus' death on the cross, the, the striking of the shepherd, of the Messiah, was actually part of God the Father's plan. He's the one calling the sword into action. It was due to the actions of us, we were certainly involved in putting Jesus on the cross. But what was intended for evil, God intended and used for good. This, this poem reveals that. The death of Jesus was not humanity thwarting God's perfect plan. It was actually part of God's perfect plan. The Lord is... Oh, sorry. I, I lost my spot. Yeah, okay. It's the Lord's plan. So Jesus loves us, and Jesus died for us, and he sacrificed his life for us. And he bore the pain and the shame of the cross for us. But the Lord God was the one who actually put this plan into action. I don't think about that enough. I think it's easier for us to relate to Jesus because he came to earth as a man in flesh. Um, And that's part of what makes him so compelling and easy to relate to is that he came and experienced life as a man. But with the person of God, it's often so difficult to ever relate to what God is like or what God goes through. But I think that that's a shame because we don't think about the sacrifice that God the Father actually made and the act of love that it was for us when he ordained his own son to die on the cross for us. He put that plan in motion, sending his dearest companion, his son Jesus, to die in our place. And this isn't the only place in the Bible that that's made clear. 
Um, in the New Testament, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Or Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I'm pretty sure I know about you guys, but I'm not totally sure. I'm, a, I'm still a sinner. How about you guys? Are you all still sinners? Okay, the answer is yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. We're all still sinners. And God loves us all so much that he sent Jesus on the cross for us as we are now. Like, as you are right now, you are who God loved and sent Jesus to the cross for. And that goes for everyone, people in here and people outside. He did that so that we could be freed from the slavery of sin, that we could be led into a reconciled life, a reconciled relationship with him. So if this poem is laying out God's gospel plan, his perfect plan, this is the first part of it, that the shepherd Jesus must be sent to die and to to be raised again in order to defeat sin and death. But the plan doesn't end there. The poem continues. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones and the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish and one-third shall be left alive. So it's important to note here, it's another Waldo moment, as we're going to call him. This is what Jesus quotes in Matthew twenty six thirty one, when he predicted to his disciples his betrayal and his arrest and his crucifixion. Uh, he said, then Jesus said to him, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He's quoting this passage in Zechariah to communicate to his disciples who he is, that he is the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. He's saying, I am the shepherd. But he was also telling his disciples what to expect in the future, in the light of the crucifixion, what was going to happen after his death. And in that same way, I think that Zechariah is, in this poem, not only prophesying the literal scattering of the disciples, but he's telling the people of Israel in his time, And he's telling us and all followers of Christ, all of his sheep, what to expect in the light of the death of the Messiah, in the light of the crucifixion. And he says that what will happen in the aftermath of the striking of the shepherd is that the sheep will be scattered. Uh, To put it another way, the sheep will be thrown into suffering, trials and pain and hardship. When you read the words scattering or scattered in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, It is often talking about this, an act of God that the result is people are thrown into suffering. Um, You you can see it a lot in the Old Testament. It's always some form of trials for the people being scattered. And in this case, it's everyone. We're all, everybody's the sheep. We know that Zechariah's prophetic words came true. In the hours after Jesus' death, his disciples were scattered in fear and shame. And then after his resurrection, when he gathered the disciples back together and restored them, there ended up being more persecution against all the followers of Christ. It was escalated even more, and once again they were scattered. The cross and the striking of the shepherd did not remove suffering from this life, but it provided a path to preservation, and it provided a perfect Savior who came and suffered alongside us and suffered for us. The certainty of suffering in life isn't just the theme that's been repeated in these minor prophet books, although it has been repeated a lot. It's something that Jesus lived out and spoke about. 
In John 15, 20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. I think it's important that we stop here for a minute because I feel like I've, I hear a lot, and we've all probably heard it these days, a, a damaging sort of false gospel propagating an idea that as long as you're holy enough or don't, don't sin or pray hard enough or be faithful enough that, that God will bless you and that you won't ever suffer, that you just will never suffer, that if you follow God faithfully enough, if you always find his plan for your life, that nothing bad will happen to you. But I would say that if that's the case, uh, someone should have told Jesus. And if it was ever promised that a person, if a person lived holy enough, that everything would go great for them, that they'd never struggle or weep or be hurt or be tempted, it doesn't seem like anyone let Jesus know. I, I think Tozer puts this really well in his book, Who Put Jesus on the Cross?, He says, we forget that our Lord was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. We forget the the arrows of grief and pain which went through the heart of Jesus' mother, Mary. We forget that all of the apostles except John died a martyr's death. We forget that there were 13 million Christians slain during the first two generations of the Christian era. We forget that they languished in prison that they were starved, were thrown over cliffs, were fed to the lions, were drowned, that they were sown in sacks and thrown into the ocean. There was much distress, many heartaches, painful bruises, flowing tears, much loss, and many deaths. Guys, everyone suffers. And we might not live in that reality where we're facing lethal persecution for our beliefs, though many still are in this world and we should always be praying for them and we should never forget that that's a reality for so many people. And that we are blessed to live in a place where we can practice our beliefs openly. But that doesn't mean that we don't go through suffering. Tozer said in that quote, There was much distress, many heartaches, painful bruises, flowing tears, much loss, many deaths. That's the suffering of daily life that we all go through. We live in the same broken world that Jesus did. And it's our reality just as much as it was theirs and all the followers of Christ. And I do want to tell you that you are not meant to suffer this way alone, and you're certainly not meant to be left in it forever. Jesus came to suffer with us and for us, and he did it all the while promising us the only way to bring us out of it. And to follow Jesus is to follow him through suffering, not just into suffering, but through it. Zechariah ends this section of the poem with a promise of hope and of good news. God preserves a remnant of his sheep, he says. This suffering will not claim everyone. Though all the sheep scattered and many of the sheep will remain lost and many will perish, Zacharias says that God will place his hand of protection over some. This is what is meant when the Lord says in his poem, I will turn my hand against the little ones. I thought Tom, when he preached on this this morning, did really well to point this out because that line can come across as being like, well, you're going to turn your hand against the little ones, that sounds pretty brutal. But in light of the context of the rest of of the poem, it seems to me that Zechariah is more echoing the words of Isaiah. Isaiah 49.2, he says, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. Or in Isaiah 51.16, he says, I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand. 
establishing the heavens, laying the foundations of the earth, and saying to Zion, you are my people, which is also echoed in this poem. God promises to preserve you. He's preserving you now. And in the process of preserving you and protecting you, he also promises to strengthen you and to refine you and to purify you. So this last section of the poem starts with an image that probably many of you are familiar with. It's used many times in scripture. It's the image of the refining fire. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So it seems that most people don't like the idea very much. The idea of being tested at all, let alone by, tested by fire, I don't think anyone really is like responds super well to that idea right away. We don't like trials or the idea of needing to be refined at all. Um, but in, at the same time, we're, we're pretty aware of the reality that the main way that we grow and learn and change is through some form of discomfort. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a saying called, no pain, no gain. I didn't come up with that. It's pretty famous. But it's famous for a reason, because it's true. Like, how can you forgive, learn to forgive somebody if no one ever hurts you? Or how can you learn what it means to have peace if you never experience unrest? How can you learn patience if nothing ever causes you to lose your patience or test your patience? Guys, I have, I have three kids, and I love them. <laughs> but kids test your patience, and it's not pleasant. But through it, your patience grows, hopefully. <laughs> we don't expect to get, work out to go running and not experience aches and pains from doing that. That's why I don't run. <laughs> but <clears throat> we do seem to push back against the idea that as, as far as the fruits of the Spirit go or our journey into growing into the likeness of Christ, that the same would hold true. Um, I knew two guys in high school, they were football players, and they took steroids because they wanted to get super strong, but they didn't realize that you also had to work out for them to do anything. They thought, oh, this will be a great shortcut. I'll just get super ripped now just by taking these drugs. They just got puffy. So I think it's important that we do not think like the football players. There will be some form of, of pain and stress and trials in our journey of growing in the likeness of Christ. Um, I know that I've experienced growth being the pastor, the worship pastor here at Dorf Hope for eight years now. When I remember when Josh first asked me if I wanted to come on staff here. I had a real moment of like, do I want to work in ministry? And I think part of my big hesitation was that I knew that it would be throwing me into a serious refining fire. And the, the flesh side of me was like, you don't want to do that. No way. And I was like really hemming and hawing. I was like, oh, the things that that's going to ask of me. Not thinking about the things that that would grow in me, just thinking of the things that it would ask of me. 
And luckily, I'm married to a wonderful woman who essentially slapped me and was like, what are you doing? Actually, I think her words were, I don't have the skills to do a job like that, but I always wanted to, so let me live vicariously through you. (laughs) And it worked. (laughs) And I didn't run from the refining fire, and I haven't, and it has been difficult. And the times that I've grown are often the times where I've been confronted with my own sin, where I've been confronted with my own weakness, when the Lord has used other people in my life to call me out on my pride, um, when I've hurt people by not being honest or by not being kind. And I've learned from those. And I have a long way to go. But I, I will tell you that through trials, the fruits of the Spirit in my life have grown. Now that being said and that being true, I also want to tell you that you don't only get refined and purified through trials and through hard stuff. The Lord can use good stuff too. The fact is our whole life is a refining fire and our whole life is going to be spent in the process of sanctification. The good times and the bad times. Sanctification is a lifetime process. So we'd be mistaken to think of just the hard times as the refining fire. Even right now. Now granted, this might be kind of a hard time for some of you. So maybe I'm going against my point. But even right now, the Lord is refining us. He wants to use all of our life to refine us, to grow us into the likeness of Christ. Um, There isn't a shortcut to it. We think that there might be. The football players thought they could shortcut sanctification by just taking the steroids. (laughs) There's one thing you take away from this. Don't shortcut sanctification by taking the steroids. No, there is no shortcut, and Jesus is not even the shortcut. He's the only way, and he paid it all, and it's through his death on the cross that there is any way, but he isn't a shortcut to bypass sanctification. Sanctification is part of God's great plan of restoration for us, and it's an integral part of the plan that we've been talking about tonight. It's part of the same plan that started with Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection, and the same plan in which God preserved you from the scattered flock, not to save you from present suffering, but to save you from the slavery of sin and the slavery of death. And part of this plan is for God to have a relationship with you and to be within you and to cultivate within you the likeness of Christ. Another quote from Tozer from from the same book that I kept returning to, he says, God wants to bring us the fruit of the Spirit, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Apostle Paul made it very plain in his language to the Ephesians that God wants to do something within every single one of us that will cause us to love everybody. Getting rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave us. That is what God wants to do. He wants to bring out the likeness of Christ in the heart and life of the redeemed man. So when Zacharias says that we'll be tested by fire, he's not talking about like a pop quiz. He's not saying that God is like a cosmic professor who's trying to rat out the people who didn't do their homework because Jesus already turned in our passing grade. Our sins are forgiven. Our grades are thrown out. This kind of testing is the kind of testing that patiently and faithfully and sometimes painfully 
burns away our brokenness and our impurities and our shame and begins to reveal the likeness of Christ in us. Jesus took on our likeness in order to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have a saving relationship with him that would in turn reveal his likeness within us. Kind of confusing. Kind of meta. (laughs) But true. This won't be an easy process. That's why God goes through it with us. Without him, we would never make it through the process at all. And the, the passage that we're reading from ends by saying that Israel will call out to the Lord and he will answer them. He's, Zechariah is telling us that the Lord hears us. He's present with us. He remembers us and he loves us. It's a real relationship. He calls us his people so that we may be able to respond in kind and call him and say that he is our Lord. So I think it's appropriate to just say, I know that everybody here is in a different place, and a lot of you are going to take away something from this, and it's all going to be different. I hope that all of you take away something from this. Um, So for some of you, this might be like all new information, and you're maybe a little bit confused, and it's a lot to take in. And I would encourage you to pray with somebody about that. Um, And I think for some of you, maybe it isn't all new, but you're starting to understand the reality that Jesus is truly the Messiah who was prophesied about hundreds and hundreds of years before he was even born. And that's cool. That means you're getting pumped on hermeneutics. And we need more people who are pumped on hermeneutics. Um, But maybe you came tonight and you're suffering, and you've been wondering where Jesus is in all of the suffering, if he understands or if he cares, or if this is how things are supposed to be. Um, And I am here to tell you that this is not how things were intended to be, and this is not how things will always be. The world is broken, and suffering is a part of it, but Jesus totally understands. And he suffered for your sake, and he suffered to preserve you, and he wants to help strengthen you. And I think that if you're feeling something like that, you should pray with somebody about that. I also think that maybe some of us came tonight feeling like, The heat of the refining fire has been ratcheted up a few notches lately. Maybe things are more difficult. The refining fire feels hotter. Um, And I want to tell you to have faith and to know that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. And that's a promise in Scripture. And it's something that we can look forward to and hope. If things are feeling difficult, you can call out to the Lord and he will hear you. That's how this poem ends. He will answer you because he is your Lord and you are his people. And maybe you should pray with somebody about that. We're going to have an opportunity for you to do that. So yeah, this is the gospel encapsulated in two verses in Zechariah. Jesus, the good shepherd, died for you on the cross and rose again to conquer death so that you could be preserved from death and raised into his likeness to have reconciled relationship, a real relationship with the Lord. And that's good news. I mentioned before about, you know, always trying to find God's plan for your life. What is God's plan? How people talk about as long as you find God's plan, you're not going to suffer. That might not be true. And I don't know what God's plan is for your life specifically. Often I don't know what God's plan is for my life specifically. But I do know for certain that God's plan, the one we've been talking about tonight, his plan is for all 
who lay down their lives and called Jesus Lord, he will save them, he will preserve them, and he will change them. And that is a promise of scripture. I know that for, I know that for a fact. So I just want to encourage you guys, wherever you're at, I hope that this was able to speak to you in some way. Um, and I want to pray for you. Hey friends, this is Josh from Door of Hope. We're in a period of expanding our efforts as a church to reach our city with the gospel, which includes having moved into our new building as well as pursuing church planting. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and would never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help us as we seek to expand our ministry in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your support and prayer. To donate financially to Door of Hope, just head to doorofhopepdx.org and select Generosity and Give Online. Thanks again for listening.